split getting ready. Split getting ready. split ready. Getting split ready. For my wife, God rest her soul. Oh God, I'm so sorry. No, 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 she's not dead. <laughs> We're just divorced. Unscripted and honest discussions on divorce and separation. Getting split ready. What was I supposed to tell him? I divorced you from the church. Here's your hosts, Doug Katz and Mariah Pleasant. Hey, how's it going? And welcome to another episode of Getting Split Ready. Tonight, we have a great couple of guests on our panel. We've got Cameron Goodman from the Goodman Law Firm, divorce attorney extraordinaire. I've worked with him on some stuff. Fantastic divorce attorney. And Colleen Honquist, certified divorce coach, founder of the Divorce Coalition, and founder of C. Dick and Jane Get Divorced. That We highlighted that a couple of times on the show. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Talking about a little bit about that uh, tonight. So, uh, find my notes here. The first segment of Getting Split Ready is brought to you by Split Ready, your source for preparing for your divorce and finding professionals to help you get divorced. If you're getting divorced, go to Getting Split Ready www.splitready.com. Take the assessment, find out where you stand, and get split ready. We're going to jump right in, talk a little bit about preparing for a divorce and discovery, leading off with Cameron, and um, talk a little bit about what discovery is. I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand what discovery is. Well, discovery is the process by which the court system uh, provides for the parties to exchange information and documents. Now, don't they already know each other, though? You've got two people. <laughs> They've been married. You know, I guess if it was like a quick Vegas wedding, maybe not. But when, when does discovery really come in? Well, there's different types of discovery. Okay. Uh, everybody going through a divorce has to do what's called a financial affidavit, the financial disclosure statement. Okay. Everybody has to do that. And uh, so that's, that's part of discovery. And in most cases, that's all that's really needed. The more assets, the more discovery. Um, so after the financial affidavit is done, then we're into what might be informal discovery. So the parties might voluntarily exchange documents that, uh, without having any formal discovery instrument imposed upon them. They do it voluntarily to avoid additional expense of further discovery if they can avoid it. So informal discovery is them agreeing to substantiate information in their financial disclosure without the lawyers having to ask each other for it, sort of. Uh, Sort of. You, that, may, that may be true, but uh, generally speaking, with the, the new rules with the financial affidavits require the parties to produce the supporting documents with the financial affidavit. The voluntary discovery would be more documents that you want beyond what was in the financial affidavit. Like, for example, a party may disclose uh, the existence of a non-marital property. So, That's what I was going to so yeah. is There's times, I'm sure, where people are less than honest. Um, we actually what? had well, we we had a uh, forensic accountant on a couple a couple episodes ago, and is it a legal document? Like, if, what if you are not honest on it? What is the recourse for the for the spouse who's who's divorcing? Uh, sanctions. Uh, sanctions. Uh, you know, fine. Um, you know, it really more just a, an opportunity to file an amended affidavit from the judge as quickly as possible. Okay. Because I think how normally that would get resolved. Um, people do file incomplete affidavits or affidavits that are ambiguous about what's exactly in there, and that's what—that's when you start. You go into formal discovery. If you didn't get what you wanted uh, uh, with respect to the financial affidavit and voluntary discovery, then you would go on to what's called formal discovery, and that's when you you hear about the costs 
excessive amount of money frequently. For example, interrogatories, requests to produce, uh, requests to admit, subpoenas, and then you get into oral discovery, which are depositions. So often in a couple, one person has a pretty good handle on the finances. One person may not have such a good handle to different levels of, of knowledge. Uh, if I'm the person who doesn't really have a good handle on the finances, that financial affidavit can be pretty overwhelming. Um, are there, is there advice that you have for that person who's in that situation who really doesn't know what they have? Use the tools that Discovery has to offer and make sure that they get all of the information that they need. We can't divide up the pie without knowing how big it is, right? Agreed. So can they, in their first pass of the financial affidavit, say, I don't know? They can. They can. And usually the financial affidavit is about what expenses are, is the person who's preparing the affidavit actually paying? Um, that's on the expense, on the income expense side. On the, on the asset side, uh, they may put on their, you know, uh, husband's pension upon information of belief. You know, they may only know from five years ago because the husband mentioned it to them in passing mm -hmm. uh, that the asset even exists, um, and they can put on there that, you know, the husband should be disclosing it, but they can certainly either not put it on their affidavit, which is one option, or alternatively, they could wait and see whether the husband discloses it and then send out um, you know, interrogatories, requests to produce, and uh, maybe subpoenas, more likely subpoenas uh, in that case. Now, Colleen, as a divorce coach, you're – Obviously, really integrated in the process. Do you help out with discovery when people are when they when they retain you as a divorce coach? Well, sometimes when they come to me and they're working with their lawyer, they are in the process of gathering the documents, and a lot of times they get overwhelmed. So I tend to try to break it down into segments and say, "Well, today, <laughs> let's just gather documents. Uh, you know, whether it's your bank statements and credit cards." And I try to break it down into a smaller amount so they don't get quite so paralyzed. Um, but yeah, I, I do get involved and I do try to help them through that process because a lot of the times when they're working with their lawyer, um, they just need a little bit more of the uh, information. I, I think that that's a, a great observation. I mean, what often happens, what I'll often do is send a paralegal out to their home if they're in that overwhelmed, they're having that much trouble getting through all the documents and gathering it and actually help them get those documents uh, rather than waiting for them to do it. Do you find that discovery differs with the different type of divorce, like mediation? Is there still a discovery process if they're, if they're more amicable, or is it, is it like joint discovery? How does that work? It's, there's still a discovery process in mediation, and, but it's a voluntary process. If the party's not going to produce the documents voluntarily, then there's no longer a voluntary mediation taking place. In voluntary mediation, they have to be willing to be forthcoming and transparent or the whole thing kind of crashes. crashes a bit. <laughs> Correct. Right. Um, is there advice that you would have to, and this is to either one of you, to someone who's thinking about divorce in terms of prepping for discovery prior to retaining an attorney, prior to going down the road of divorce, but wanting to get their ducks in a row, so to speak? Well, one thing that, that I always tell individuals is start looking at bank statements, uh, gathering any kind of credit card numbers, anything they can. Nothing, you know, you don't have to be a detective, but try to keep track of whatever you can find and um, start documenting. Yeah, I, I, would agree with, I would agree with that. I would add to it that, um, you know, uh, 
figure out whose name the credit cards are in. Um, if that person doesn't have credit of their own, ap apply for it um, and make sure that that issue is is uh, is addressed as far ahead of time as just possible. Um, I think that's an important point that you touch on too. And Doug, you can speak to this in terms of credit too. If someone doesn't have a credit history, knowing that they may be going into a divorce, getting something in their own individual name can be it's really a good important, idea. Correct? I mean, it's you can create some alternate credit with with bills, right? So you can get those sometimes added to a credit report, you know, stuff like cable bill and things like that. But they should get credit. They should start establishing stuff for that next life. You know, one thing that I always tell especially stay-at-home moms, is if you can run a credit report, do it. Well, you can run a credit report. So be sure they know what's out there and whatever they're attached to. At That's a great point. And, and they can get them free. Like yeah. You can get one free from each bureau throughout the year, and then you can request other ones. There's always a way you can get it. So it's, it's a good way to go. Yeah, I think it, it's important to know what your name is attached to, oh, yeah. bottom line. Yeah. Well, and, and I actually recommend people put a fraud alert on just because as stuff's changing hands, you can put a 90-day fraud alert on. Nobody can open new credit unless they check what the person's name is on there and, and it protects them from that. Yeah, I, I would add to that that uh, kind of uh, building up the support system, you know, whether that's emotional or financial. I mean, uh, I think both are really important. And, uh, you know, for the financial side, I think that sometimes people don't want to do it, but they have to look to friends and family right. to help them pay for that. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's something that you have to think about pretty early on in the process. Right. Uh, I do have a question, though. With you doing different types of divorce, and, and I know we all know each other through you know, mediation cases and collaborative law group, that's great, but I know you, you deal with litigation as well. How often do you come across in discovery where people are like, holy Crap, like I didn't know that my spouse had this, either from a debt or an asset perspective. Um, there, aren't, there aren't too many, you know, uh, moments like that, in the, you know, but it does, it does happen. Uh, it's more the cases that, uh, where you have businesses that the, uh, you know, that the other spouse didn't know, that, or maybe they knew the husband was involved in it, but they didn't know how much. Um, you know, it, it's actually more the discovery of debts mm -hmm. and obligations That's what I was say, that right? are the yeah. surprise. And what happens then? I mean, is it is it? Do you typically see potentially amicable divorces slip into uh, a lot more contentious? Absolutely, absolutely. The person who uh, who that happened to feels betrayed and angry, and whatever trust they had, they they really start to question um, any decision based upon trusting their their spouse. Now, does undisclosed debt is that treated differently as the negotiation goes back and forth? It's. It's, well, it's not really undisclosed. It was, it's disclosed in the financial affidavit. That, that might be the first time that... that, that That's, yeah, yeah, I meant more like the spouse didn't know, and all of a sudden there's divorce, and they're like, holy crap, there's 75 grand in debt I didn't know about. Yeah. And it's not like a student loan. That's maybe good. It, not great, but still better than, like, credit card debt. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, but it's, yeah, it's still a, it's a marital debt, and the person who didn't know about it is obviously understandably very unhappy about that. Yeah, don't underestimate financial infidelity. It can be just as as devastating as any oh, other sure. kind of infidelity. I'm sure. Um, in this day and age of electronic bill pay, I joke, but it's true, that if something happened to me, my husband would have to wait for disconnection notices <laughs> to know who to pay or what to pay just because I handle all of that. I think that's probably true 
in a lot of cases, you know, we talk about looking for the credit card statements. What if everything's online? What if you don't have those tangible paper resources um, to look for? Are there electronic sleuthing mechanisms that people can use? Credit report would be the first place to start with that. First place to start with that. Um, I think there's a certain amount of sleuthing that can be done without breaking any rules before you get divorced just around the house. Yeah, um, definitely. Which is, I think, what you're... Um, yeah, I always tell my clients, um, start looking in you know, file cabinets and start checking the mail, but uh, definitely run that credit report first because there's, they haven't usually. What about hard assets, right? So there's paper trail for credit cards. Mm -hmm. Hard what? Hard assets. Like <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Sorry. There's, you know, with, with <laughs> you threw my train of thought. Uh, you know, with bank statements and stuff like that, it's easy to find. But if somebody has squirreled away gold, silver, things that are of value that they've put that way specifically for that, or even cash. Safe deposit you know, in boxes, the, in the they still do. In the you call it mattress money, right? So they could be sitting on tens of thousands of dollars. How does that play into it? Well, you're asking whether those, those things are discoverable, you can locate yeah, them? Yeah, kind of, uh, right? So ultimately, I'm sure they're hard to find, I'm sure they're hard to track, but there's gotta be ways you could look and say, wait a minute, there's money coming from somewhere. Yes, well, if there's, a, well, if there's money coming into the bank accounts, obviously you can follow the money that way, like a forensic accountant might. Um, Casino chips in a storage locker somewhere. I, I don't know that there's much that, that we're never going to find. Are you able scenario. to find if someone's got a safe deposit box that is in their name? Is that something where you can look and go, hey, we need to know everywhere or like storage lockers, right? Like they could have a U-Haul or not a U-Haul, like a U-Haul store stuff. If we can find where it is, we can subpoena it. Okay. Usually there's a monthly bill coming in mm -hmm. for those things, you know? That's correct. Okay. But another thing to really look at, and I'm sure Cameron, you know, is lifestyle assessment. And Mariah and I have talked about this. But if you're driving a Mercedes, you're living in a million dollar house, and you know, you tell your your ex, "I only make eighty thousand. Well, there's things that you have to look at. Yeah, it's a spend analysis, which you go yes. through and literally put together a spreadsheet that describes the spending on a monthly average mm -hmm. and everything. And that'll help you understand what is actually transpiring in terms of spending in the household. And that goes into the lifestyle argument. Another important place to look is tax returns. Uh, if someone wanted to pre-plan, and I only speak to this because it's a case I know of, uh, you can have as much as you want deducted from your tax return. So if five, six years before the marriage, you start having a third of your income taken away out of taxes, you can have a dollars $150,000 tax credit sitting there and then you get divorced, and the person who's first on that tax return generally gets that credited to them. Fortunately for us in Illinois, they have to disclose. Mm -hmm. well, they may not actually do it the right way, but that is information that, that, we, sh that's, that we should right. be able to get. Um, and anyone can order a tax transcript. So even if you're the spouse who just kind of signs the tax return and doesn't look at it, you can order a transcript of that tax return. Excellent point. That's so I got two questions. First subpoenaing you know you talked about subpoenaing information about storage lockers and things like that what about family if there's an expectation that somebody maybe be moving maybe is moving money to family members and stuff like that how how does that change the discovery process if we had evidence of a transaction going from the once one party's bank account to uh that family member you know and, a, and so we had evidence that there's a basis for issuing a subpoena then yeah i mean we can send the subpoena they would move to quash it 
and then we'd have to argue about how burdensome it is upon that person to respond to it. And then what about cryptocurrency? I mean, it's kind of fallen out of the headlines a lot, but cryptocurrency is sort of trackable, but not trackable, things like that. Have you seen any of that move into the divorce marketplace? I have. It's something that uh, I would say really more in the last two years mm -hmm. has started to show up on financial affidavits and people's, you know, people's marital estates. Um, and it's just like any, I mean, I haven't really encountered any issues. With I meant more like yet. hiding it. Cause oh, hiding like, it. when cryptocurrency hit, it was like, okay, that's pretty obviously why they came up with it is somebody doesn't want to know where they don't want people to know where their money is. I don't think we, I think we're behind in tracking cryptocurrency. I have no mm -hmm. way of finding out where to, where to locate cryptocurrency other than get a response or maybe a payment to a cryptocurrency account money going out. Now we've got some evidence of it. Now we found it. You can also hide money. If anyone's listening who wants to hide money, um, relatively easily on Venmo and PayPal. You can kind of stash a balance there. And if you're not listing that as one of your accounts and it's not trackable by a forensic person looking at your bank accounts, you could have $100,000 sitting in Venmo. Which is well, why. It's like, what is that? There's a, I think I read somewhere that a lot of the, uh, the women, if they didn't have a source of income, um, you know, a while ago, less now, would. When they go to the grocery store, I get a little bit more out, that, right? yeah. mm -hmm. a little bit out, and yep. then squirrel it away and squirrel it away and cash. squirrel it away, yeah, so that the they've cash. got cash, yeah, you know, to do that. So there's interesting strategies to, to get. I actually do talk mm -hmm. to women that are going through abusive situations. That that's one way they can build up like a safe plan and have a little cash. Is they go to the grocery store and they take a little cash mm -hmm. every time, and it's kind of the backdoor way of building up a little savings. But I, I like the PayPal credit. Um, idea i mean it's not nor, standard discovery doesn't ask for that nope um you can ask for discovery that would ask for what a credit balance of an account like that all you have to do is ask for the credit balances and you've got you found the asset right correct um and it should probably become more standard but it isn't um but then as you go through like the forensic looking at accounts all you have to see is one transaction that mentions a venmo account yep. it's triggered and you look for it and you never know what you find and aren't a lot of those, the financial discovery requests, that they're very much templates and lawyers just send them and not default lawyers, but, you know, they don't always list all the little things that can be hidden. Yeah, and one, you're correct, that's, those are Supreme Court approved interrogatories and requests to produce. Um, what, what, what might happen is an attorney might remove some of those to give them more, more back some of the interrogatories because there's a limit how many you can send out. Right. And then send out a supplemental set. Right. Um, if, if you suspect that that's something that you may want to pursue down the road. Depending how deep you want to dive. Because yeah, there are cases where this isn't going to be necessarily relevant. Correct. But in, in most cases, there's something to litigate, but something, maybe one or two issues. It's not mm. necessarily everything. It's just a couple of issues for, for most cases. Well, and I think it's not necessarily what to fight over. It might just be grasping the scope of what you have to deal with, right? So... You know, I it seems like you gravitate toward discovery being about, hey, what are we going to fight over as opposed to, okay, what are we dealing with? How much debt is there? How many assets are there? And that might be for a positive reason. Right. And it's also about um, making, it's a negotiation process. Non-marital estate, maybe the house is a non, they're claiming is non-marital. as the parties continue to negotiate and maybe one party or the other doesn't fully recognize um, that that's a true statement. Sure, sure. But that's, I mean, I, 
And on an emotional level, too, I think even in a more amicable divorce, the underlying question that everyone has is, are we going to be okay? Can we take what supported one household and now support two? And right. if you don't know what you have, there's no way that you can answer that question in a way that gives you any sense of reassurance. So right. yeah. figuring out the pie before you cut it up is really important. It creates a lot of anxiety to delay that process, mm -hmm. I think. It seems like a hugely important aspect of it, and uh, you know we, we talk a lot about preparation, and I think it's it's you know preparation is is what everything's all about. So if people want to find out more information about discovery or they need help with any kind of, I mean, you handle everything from mediation to litigation to collaborative, right? That's you correct. do the, the whole suite. That's correct. How what's the best way to get hold of you? Uh, my best way to get hold of me is my phone number six three zero four seven four sixty seven hundred or my website goodmandivorce.com. Fantastic. Split Ready is brought to you by Cats Funding. Not all marital assets, not all marital real estate is residential. Cats Funding is there to help you with your investment real estate. Go to www.catsfunding.net if you have a need to finance any investment properties. Now we want to move on where the holidays are coming up. We've been talking about Holiday Do weather we, is here in Chicago. Holiday? No, this isn't holiday. This is like Arctic weather. This is, <laughs> you know, some holidays like I like Fourth of July holiday. Weather. This is not <laughs> the good holiday weather, but I think the holidays where family is a big part of it is, is hits. And we've been talking about Ryan. I've been talking about doing a show about what the heck do you do after the divorce or even during the divorce with parenting. So great panel tonight to talk about that. So what's the advice? I mean, we had some great articles talking about changing of traditions and things like that that come with it um what can people do so i think the articles that we had sent out and we can post them to the website as well focused on two two parts of this right so the first part of parenting through the holidays is making sure that part of your divorce agreement is a really well written well thought out uh executable parenting plan and the other part is um, how do you really do it after the divorce is done, that, especially that first year? How do you implement what is on many levels new, but on a lot of levels also familiar? Uh, whatever tradition you had together as a family is either doing is being done by part of the family or by both sides of the family at different times, which is equally awkward or not at all, which gives a sense of loss. Yeah, so I, had the t I had the two Thanksgivings growing up. Did you? And it was crazy. Yeah, it was it was, you know, you go to one and you go to the other a ton of food sounds delicious <laughs> it was you know what it is kind of cool though because you did like people had their favorite things so you really got you know everybody eats all day anyhow but yeah it's, it's crazy so about a decade ago um my mom's side of the family started thanks friday because there's a couple divorces in our family and instead of all of us running around on thanksgiving going from house to house to house we just moved that family to thanks friday and it's made things a lot easier but that's just an example of one of the ways that families can accommodate growing families. Um, I know, Colleen, you work in more high-conflict cases, usually, not always, but usually. Um, what are your thoughts on parenting through the holidays? Uh, well, I like what you said about um, uh, parenting agreements during the divorce to be written very clearly. I always talk to my clients about having everything very black and white, and I'm sure, Cameron, you can chime in on this, but unless it's spelled out and times and dates and holidays are all very much, you know, very clear between the two families, it does get confusing and the holidays are stressful anyways. So 
I think um, as long as those agreements are very clear, everything's written out and you know what year kids are going where, things can, can actually flow pretty well, even in a high-conflict divorce. Well, I, I certainly agree that a well-written agreement makes that, um, makes that process easier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say start early um, because there is a fair amount of lead time required if there is no agreement reached and court intervention is required. Uh, sure. And if you don't give yourself enough time, you know there really isn't enough time. You're, nothing's going to happen. Sure. There's no, there's no more, no more court days in the year with the, with the, uh, with the judges available. You know, there. Oh, I'm sorry, did I? No. There, no. there was some. There was an interesting part in one of the articles that talked about like renegotiation and like where people's heads are at during the divorce and saying, hey, you know, here's what we're doing, and then you know someone might get remarried. It changes the whole dynamic. Kids get older, and certain holidays are not as cool anymore you know, halloween like yeah halloween's a big one when kids are little both yeah. parents want to see them dress Listen, up in costume I, yeah. halloween's a big first too you know true okay um, Doug. but the 11 year old in my household has no more interest in us this year right he wants to be with his friends <laughs> i totally get it he, we can't he can't cover nearly as much real estate if there's adults in tow as he can right, with his friends right, so right. um it's important when but then there's halloween parties and stuff so Correct. Obviously, it's a very important holiday for you. <laughs> for me? Yes. It's a huge holiday. I'm a totally but you know what that brings up? That brings up that to some people, or maybe to one person in a couple, holiday uh, Halloween would be important, whereas the other person may not be like, eh, I don't really care about Halloween, but 4th of July is my jam. I want to do the fireworks. I want to do the barbecue with the kids. And that's where there may be some trade-off. I know a lot of parenting plans rotate, right? Like, And that can be hard on the kids versus... Finding more of that <coughs> consistent groove. Um, I tend to work more in mediations, less than high conflict. And so what I hear a lot is, you know, I just don't think we're going to fight about that. I think it'll be fine. Um, I wonder what you have to say to that, Cameron, as an <laughs> attorney working through those. Well, I mean, people definitely fight about it. Um, I think that it's, it's important to, because of the limited wow. amount of time, and because judges really don't like these motions, mm-hmm. um, that coming to an agreement, if it's possible, is, is, is really the ideal outcome. Uh, one way that I've seen in really heavily litigated cases where no one, they don't want to rotate Christmas, so you just split Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, mm-hmm. and that usually happens to kind of split break right in the middle oftentimes. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a nice even break, and there's less contact between the parents, and, uh, you know, and things seem to go smoothly. But I would say that people are, people are all people are unique. No, right. they have. Uh, they do have, like you're pointing out. Uh, there's, you know, there's probably five different ways I can think of to divide up Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, and I think that's less true of Christmas. But, uh, but I think the big challenge would be ones where there's school holidays and you might travel, right? So you can't do like the back-to-back days because <coughs> someone might be like, "Hey, I want to do a trip every year or do something like that." Is that, but I've run into the biggest problems with people who have their, their family traditions, mm-hmm. where we always go to so-and-so's house, and, and maybe, maybe that family member at whose house they're going to every year is also paying for the divorce. So I didn't think about there's, that. There's a lot of influence exerted by that family, right? and that may drive an irrational, not to say irrational, but a, a fight that might not otherwise happen. What about birthdays, like kids' birthdays, things like that? Obviously, are gonna. You can't just say this holiday is important to somebody, so we're only gonna do it. You know, people will give that up um, voluntarily, but typically, it's you know each parent gets 
gets a minimum amount of time with the child on their birthday is the way I try to do it. Yeah, one thing that I've seen, and sorry, Mariah, but um, is the best way to do that, especially in conflict-type divorces, is to split. It's every other year. There's no, like, splitting the day, so the kid has to go back and forth. And I've just found that every other year is a lot easier on the kids. I don't know. Maybe not I can see Cameron, that. but... No, in a high conflict, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there have been some studies, too, that if there's going to be one holiday mm-hmm. where parents can come together and share that holiday... Which happens in some, not in all, um, not maybe even in most. But if there is a holiday where the parents can come together, the kid's birthday is the one that kind of matters the most because it's their day. Um, but yeah, it's not always. Well, that was part feasible. of the articles. And the articles were mm-hmm. talking about that being sort of a good component of everybody working together is doing some of those holidays together. I think one of the parts they talked about is someone had been really estranged for a long time. And then they came back together, and that was the the catalyst for, you know, somewhat healthy, healthy lifestyle. The other level to that, though, that I hadn't even thought of was, okay, so mom and dad can get along for a day. Mom and dad are fine getting along for a day. Kid's birthday party. What if grandma and grandpa, who maybe paid for the divorce, like you said, aren't going to get along with anybody and are going to make that day Mm -hmm. hell no matter what? Then you have to take other people's personalities into effect as well. Yeah. Because what you don't want to do is... It's messy. Ruin the day. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. It's really, really messy. Um, and you know. usually the clients that I work with, at least, and maybe I'm the cynical one of the bunch, but um, was gifting. Um, no one in this room will be surprised by the fact that sometimes there's a power imbalance in a relationship when people are going through a divorce and the person who can spend more often does. And should there be some, some spending limits? Should there be some communication about gifting so that one person isn't going out and you know spending thousands of dollars and the other person really can't afford that? And so finding that balance there as well, I think is possibly even trickier. Yeah, I think so. And, and I always tell my your history and how well did you control them so you know it, it doesn't work any differently when you're in a divorce you can't control that person so let it go and as far as things like gifts and you know if the other side wants to overspend and they can fine but it's the way it's going to be you can't really change other, that other person so aside from gifting i think i was watching a movie the other day it was like the Liam Neeson movie, he was a like cold pursuit, right? And there was With a, a special guy who set of divorced from his wife, and they were fighting over the dietary stuff for the kids. How much can that be put into like an agreement for holidays, right? Like, you know, cause people will fight over everything, but they were like fighting over like, can the kid eat gluten or any of the crap that he would eat? But do people get down to that granularity? Yeah, really. Um, and unless there's a, a medical reason for it, like you know, gluten intolerance. Um, the parent who is in, with the child at that time is in charge of their daily decision making and what happens to them and what's fed to them on a daily basis. So uh, there isn't a lot that can be done unless there's a, you know, a, a medical reason medical. for it, okay. which is very frustrating, I think, for, for a lot of people trying to stick to a healthy diet. Sure. I think that comes up just as often with one parent's vegetarian, wants to raise their children vegetarian or vegan, or um, and the other parent is... Uh, Whoppers all day long. And, <laughs> uh, 
that, you know, comes down to a lot of things, you know. Once, you know, and, and I say, well, are you, you just can't control that other person, and there's bigger battles. I don't know, Cameron, you probably... Wait, the kid can't date <laughs> or the or The, the <laughs> kids act, can't, right? no, no, it's, it's the other parent. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. that would be really controlling. No, the other parent. Um, you know, they try to write in clauses that say, well, he cannot have another stranger in the house. Or, Usually it's in the context of having that stranger or that person they're dating around the kids. Right. Usually the... How they, how they attack that. Yeah, but and yeah, they want it written in the agreement, and it's like, you got bigger battles. Well, if, you know. if that stranger... Got it. Um, and, uh, but that may, if there's a legitimate argument that that may endanger the kids... Now we have a reason to keep the boyfriend yeah. away from mom. How much can we've been talking about when people have the same holidays and they're fighting over it? Mm -hmm. A lot of interfaith couple these days. You know, the synagogue I belong to, I think it's like 60% interfaith. When people break up, sometimes they gravitate to become more religious. How much is there sometimes fighting over that to say, hey, we're okay with sort of a secular component of it, but we don't want too much of a particular religion driven into it because of, you know, whatever reason that they might jive with what they were, would not jive with what they do. It, well, I think if I understood your question correctly, when people fight about religion, kind of what happens? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> way to summarize, Doug, in like way less words. I know, I know, but, but I was thinking more like, like certain holidays, right? Like, like Easter versus, you know, something else yeah. and saying, hey, I don't like what that holiday is about. So I don't even want mm. them celebrating yeah. it at all. Religion's a major issue. Um, it's part of decision-making. So it's, it's not like daily decision-making, where what the child is eating is, it's, it, it falls into the, the significant decision-making category. So that's something that they're either gonna have to agree on or a judge is gonna make the decision for them. And that's gonna probably revolve more around the child's history and what the child- That's what I was gonna to. ask, if, yeah. if, if there was you know, a 10-year history of an inter- Yeah, they're going <laughs> to they're going to look at it based on what's actually happened. OK. Um, and whatever happened should more or less continue to happen. It doesn't mean that maybe whoever is advocating the religion, the, the stricter religious position might uh, might be amendable to the other party introducing a child to another faith. OK. Just maybe as more of a philosophical conversation. OK. You know, it, people do that. Um, it's in. Uh, that's that's often how it's resolved, an agreement to have the child exposed to multiple faiths and sure. leave it up to the child to some degree. Yeah, um, I mean that would be pretty cool. I get to do all the holidays. Yeah, I think, and a lot of people do that. <laughs> yeah. there are except people for the fasting ones, those yeah. those are not fun. As long yeah. as Halloween's in there. As long as Halloween is in there, you know. And I don't even eat candy. It's just I do a big, I do a big display in front of the house. I scare the kids. <laughs> yeah. Not I, my kids. <laughs> I scare other people's kids. I love well, Halloween too. Yeah. I had, a, I had a werewolf with a fog machine, a witch, and a bunch of ghosts. And had a, had a, this year you did? Uh, yeah. And yeah, then, I had some and aliens. I, and I got a video camera. And, <laughs> and so it was fun to, to videotape people's reactions to the, to the werewolf. Right, but it was, yeah. it was so wet and cold and snowy. Yep. Snowy. I had several kids run away screaming. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> one final note that one of these articles had to kind of sum this up, though, is while it's really important to have your plan to start it early, 
Um, and I think even in amicable divorces, you can look at it as a tiebreaker, right? So if this is your schedule, you can choose to agree to deviate from it if you're in agreement. And if you say you're not going to share the birthdays, but you're like, you know what, we're getting along, okay, we are going to share this birthday. You can do that. But if you don't agree, you've got your tiebreaker already there, so you don't have to go back to litigation um, necessarily. But uh, the point that the article made, too, is once you've got your plan, make a plan for yourself. If you know that you're going to be without your three kids for a week over Christmas for the first time in your life, make a plan for yourself. Go visit some friends out of town. Plan to go on a vacation. Find something to to help yourself with that plan as well because it, the first year is hard you've got to grieve you've got to go through that process yeah i think it's it, the biggest point you made is that have everything very clear in writing those agreements are very you know black and white but you can always deviate from them you you can agree as a couple to do things that are different but like you said if there's any kind of conflict you've got it all there in writing and there's less to litigate in the future this is but twins would be good that way you could like each take one or that's or super healthy twins. for the kids yeah yes. or just have twins <laughs> i'm very pragmatic <laughs> in my <laughs> solutions yeah there's no question a well-written uh, well-written agreement will save a lot of money down the road in terms of litigation expenses it's an interesting it's an interesting topic especially with the holidays coming um you know people i think thinking about it in the right way and What's very interesting to me, kind of wrapping this up, is always it should be about the kids. You know, holidays seem to always gravitate back to the kids, and uh, and I think that's got to be everyone's consideration. Definitely. Yeah. And end on that. There you go. Sounds good. Split Ready is brought to you by C. Dick and Jane Get Divorced, the premier divorce organization kit. And we're going to talk about this. Divorce is messy. See Dick and Jane Get Divorced can help keep you organized for the divorce process. If you want to know more, because we have you here, if they want to know more about See Dick and Jane Get Divorced, where can they find the information? At com. Easy. Very yeah. clever. Very, very <laughs> and easy. And this is a great segue into our, next, yep. into our next topic about organizing during the divorce. Um, and, I mean, what do you think it would be good to kind of to, to talk a little bit about why you came up with See Dick and Jane Get Divorced? Uh, yes, thank you, Doug. Um, when I went through my own divorce, I was not organized, and I was busy. I was a working mother of three little kids, and I had a, you know, a high, demanding career. And um, I would get all these papers from my financial professional, from my lawyer, and they would go in the corner or on my kitchen table, and I promptly lost everything. So, um, one of the things I thought of now as a divorce coach is uh, my clients like to know where everything is. They want to know what the motions are, what the orders are, what the parenting agreements are. So this kit that I've developed um, basically can put everything in one place. You can label your files. You can have stickers for your parenting weekends and your court dates. Everything is right there and it's all in one place. So I think the way I thought of this was I was explaining it to someone the other day is if I ask you to come in and organize my office mm -hmm. and you don't know what I do, you don't know how to organize it. You don't know what way would serve me best, how to have my files, where to have my phone, what way I want my computers. You don't know any of that because you don't know me. Once you've gone through a divorce, you know what you need to organize. But most people only go through one, hopefully, <laughs> divorce. And so at the beginning, 
they don't know what they're going to need to organize. They don't know how they're going to need to have access to those materials. So that hindsight gives you that ability to put it together in a way so that when they get that first, you know, subpoena, Discovery they know where to put it, <laughs> right? Parenting <laughs> right. agreement. Financial affidavit. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, I had no idea. And now, looking back, um, as I said, as a working professional, somebody that was so busy and had little kids and was dealing with my lawyers, uh, plural, um, you know, I didn't know how to keep everything organized. And it was very, very stressful. It, I would pile the documents and I would walk in the door after a long day and it would just suck the life out of me looking at those documents. So now, at least with this kit, people and myself, I can put it all in one place, put it away in a closet, and it just saves me a lot of stress, saves people a lot of time. We're going to talk a little bit later about generational differences in divorce, but my, I th think the main question people would say is, hey, I've got Google Cloud, I've got iCloud, I've got all these places. Paper is passe. Why, why would I need paper? Yeah, and... I think it's very important to have electronic documents, and it's great if you can do that all electronically, but, you know, and Cameron, you can probably talk to this. You know, as a lawyer and a financial person, you do hand your client a lot of paper documents, and rather than them just saying, well, I've got this on an electronic file, you do want to file those documents, especially things that you want to have as a reference. For instance, um, as a divorced parent, you want to have your parenting agreement handy. You want to be able to say, um, is this my weekend or is that his weekend? You know, it's my holiday. Is this my holiday? Yeah. yeah. Or even the MSA for the first couple of years, you're, you're going to want to reference those things. So it's kind of nice to have those things in paper form. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, my observation of clients is that they do like having, um, you know, and most of them just come in with their own notebook of, you know, of, of pleadings that they've kind of been keeping. They put everything in it. It's not organized, but it's in one place. You know, it's all in one place. But I think it's a, it's partly an emotional thing. It helps them process it when they've actually got physical paper in their hand, even if they have it in the cloud. Most of them have it in the cloud, but they still want to walk out with a physical copy because I think there's something emotional to that. And comp and to compartmentalize it, right? So this mm -hmm. section here is the financials. If this is the section that's most overwhelming to me, maybe I do ignore this section for a week or two, but I can focus on the parenting plan yeah. and not just look at the giant pile that grows and grows and grows. Or when our attorneys ask us questions and it's like, oh, where is that? How do I even get that information? Where did I put that? Um, that type of thing. So you've got it at their, at their fingertips. If they go to court, yeah, they've got access. They're to working on answering discovery responses. That takes forever. Mm -hmm. would, I think it's a good idea to have you know, and central it, location. Up, they get the exercise. Like, and that too, it's yes. Like it's all about the biceps. Right? They, stay, they stay in good shape. <laughs> right. I bet it's heavy once it's full. I, it can be, yeah. I mean, yeah. you need a couple. You know, but again, I keep going back to that parenting agreement. I mean, I know for myself, the first couple of years I would go, wait, is this, you know, what does it say exactly? And especially if I was challenged by my ex-husband. Um, it was nice to have that right there and sometimes I'm front seat of my car but you know it, it yes I had everything electronically and I still do that for my clients but it's something about sometimes having it in a paper form and having it in one place that you can put away not just pile all over the house yeah, instead of calling your lawyer I guess it gives you some <laughs> control over your information like your ex may say this is this is what's in the parenting agreement right nope here's a picture of it 
yeah. want. Yeah, or officer, you know, if somebody calls an officer and says, eh, well, it, she's doing this, and then they say, nope. Here's she won't give me my kids. It's my weekend. Brutal. I, I, brutal world. See, I always bring up world. the worst possible yeah. examples. I know. I. You got to walk around with extra copies of your parenting agreement. <laughs> well, people <laughs> also don't realize that the schools are going to want a copy car. of that yeah. parenting agreement. The doctor's offices are potentially going to want a copy of that parenting agreement. Well, for the, a mortgage, the, you know, if dental. I'm helping people out, <laughs> the amount of documents they need to to resolve a lot of the questions are huge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sure even post-divorce. You've got to start keeping some of the, the documents. And and would you recommend they have, like, the, the pre-divorce box and then the post-divorce of box? Of course or? I do. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then the five-year, no. Um, I think it's just something that, depending on how litigious your divorce is, you know, you're going to want that amount of papers around. But, again, even if you store everything electronically, you tend to have at least a few documents because even for myself it's all on my computer but I get something and I think well I'm going to deal with this later so if I get it in the mail or I get it from my lawyer I want that somewhere where I can find yeah, it. And if your computer dies or if you're, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> no I, I had that happen earlier in the year and luckily I say but if all your data is gone it's gone and that's right. pretty scary stuff. Yeah. And you have to keep track of expenses a lot of times too, um, especially if you were working in the case where the cost of the kids' expenses or the cost yeah. of extracurriculars, that has to be kept track of. Even after the divorce, if you're splitting those expenses, sometimes people will shore up quarterly or yearly on the expenses and having a place to put all of those receipts um, is important. I know there's a, a lot of technology out there. I know our family wizard is one that I think we're probably all big fans of that allows you to keep track of that. But not everyone is good on the technology and it's good on their phone. We are going to talk about the generations. Um, I have a Google calendar. I invited my husband years ago. I don't know if he's ever actually accepted <laughs> that invitation. I uh, would rather just ask yeah. me. So it work. just depends on yeah. what your affinity is to those types of things and your need to know. So well, yeah. I have a question for you, Cameron. Like, obviously, your ability to provide a great experience for a client is, is based on them being a partner in the process. Mm-hmm. This organization seems like it would solve a lot of that. Is that something that you recommend going in especially if they're a disaster and they're coming in and like papers like like one of my sons he comes back there's papers all over the place you know i love him but there's papers all over where the does place. he get that is it that same kind of thing right <laughs> is it, it's like that yeah he gets that from me right my trapper keeper when i was growing up had stuff all directions but do people come in here like no you really need to before i talk stuff together so that I can give you a good experience. Yeah, I think that there are a lot of people who would benefit from that. Um, you know, it's any, usually who isn't handling the finances already and is one overwhelmed by it. They've got, you know, cortisol running through their brain. They can't really make great decisions and much less organize anything. Um, so yeah, I, I think that would, that would be, uh, that would add a lot to the process. You know, that point exactly um, cortisol running through your brain and people that are under a lot of stress especially my clients <laughs> the high conflict people you know their frontal cortex tends to shut not even do that so it tends to come down to having the paper documents so again that's those are the people that I thought of was those people that can't file everything electronically and keep everything in order, they're just kind of getting it, and the day-to-day keeping it organized is a battle. And to convert that 
pile of paper into something more electronically usable. Take it yeah, later. Like one thing fails when you have your when you have your pile brain power. of paper in my office that needs to be scanned <laughs> and filed <laughs> electronically is immense. And I think that that is true of a lot of us. If it comes in paper form, it's just as much work to get it to electronic form as it is if something came in electronic form and then to print it out and file it. Right. So when it comes in its innate form, mm -hmm. changing that form is hard. It takes time. And if you are raising kids, still working, trying to manage your divorce, maybe. Um, yeah, you're in mode and, um, piece, right? And you might have some really good insight is, you know, it on what to get rid of, right? So some stuff doesn't have the same relevance when it's past the divorce, but you still might want it electronically. Is there, good, is there somewhere to get good instructions um, on what to keep and what to get rid of? Because it's personal information, right? You want to shred it if it's, yeah. if it's not good. Oh, you in terms how do we handle that? Or yeah, like, kind of like like where's some or... good some good information people can get on what to keep. Like you know, there's the different right. phases. Yeah, what you'd want post divorce for a quick reference would be really different than what you would want quick reference during the divorce. You still might want to access it, but not need it like right away. I mean, they're definitely going to want to have a copy of their judgment and their parent and their allocation judgment, their parenting plan. Um, beyond that, I I wouldn't. I mean, they may, I would hold on to the, the, uh, <clears throat> the discovery responses, um, deposition transcripts, court transcripts, um, you know, anything that could become part of the appellate record, I would hold on to for some period of time, probably indefinitely, if it were, if it were me. Um, and then I'd get rid of all the duplicates, all of the, all of the stuff that Haley has, just clean the file. Just shred it, get yeah. rid of it all. Yeah. And here's where I differ. <laughs> no, this is again. Get rid of it all. And yeah, mm. shred it all. No, um, I actually I, I agree with getting rid of duplicates. But again, my clients usually are so traumatized that, you know, they have these piles and they don't go through and get rid of duplicates. But I end up, I tell everybody to save pretty much everything because a lot of my clients will be going back. But I do agree if there's duplicates to definitely, you know, lessen the load. But especially if it's something you can't re reobtain, yeah. right? If it's a credit card statement that you got while you were in the home and to get it again would be to call Cameron and, you know, go through. To, like, mm -hmm. if you can't get it easily again, keep it for a while. And for most people now, all that and most discovery that of that volume is all electronic. Correct. And it's and most people are storing that stuff in the cloud. If and, your ex will hand it over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, true and I would with the caveat with that would be I'd say in the gray hair um, category mm -hmm. there, there's there's less much less of that which becomes a problem when everybody's electronic um, now we're back to paper 
And to kind of touch on one thing that you said um, to kind of summarize too, I think the ability to take the box Mm -hmm. and put it away at the end of the night or, you know, the week before Christmas, I'm going to take this box and I'm going to put it away until, you know, after Christmas is it's a visual, but it's an emotional way to, I'm going to take this giant ball of mess, put it somewhere else and it's not going to be, you know, sucking the life out of me or in the back of my mind, like, oh my gosh, I have to organize myself. I can put it away for, I think that's really important to have it contained, even if it's visually and symbolically. Yeah. It, you know, it's like I, I'd say, I'd walk into my house at night and I'd look at that pile of papers and it would just suck the feng shui out of my house, you know? So yes, I think as long as you can put it out of sight, it's somewhat out of mind. I don't know completely. What I would love to, are there any big mistakes that you've seen anecdotally that people have made from an organizational perspective and kind of what was the outcome like was it did it have a adverse outcome on what was going on well i I would certainly say that people um pro se um who are disorganized are going to have a really hard time if and for our listeners pro se means uh dyi ah okay and what we we've read 70 plus percent people are doing that now Depends on your demog- on your geographic location, um, but I've heard statistics anywhere from 50 to, I was talking to a collaborative attorney from Canada, and he said 80% of their constituents uh, file without attorneys. So uh, it's a large demographic. And just because they're filing without attorneys or financial help or coaching help or mortgage help doesn't mean that they don't need it. They're just not getting it. Doesn't mean they're split ready. Correct. There you go. But <laughs> so the outcome can be a disaster. Absolutely. I mean, the, the same rules that apply to attorneys or parties, represented parties during litigation, apply to people who are doing a DYI. Um, they don't get a break. So, and the rules are technical, they're cumbersome, and they're very time-consuming to comply with. And I think a lot of people um, don't understand that or just haven't had the, uh, it really hasn't been explained to them or, or they just don't want to accept the amount of work that's involved and and the cost, uh, and I think they get very frustrated. So something like see Dick and Jane get divorced actually, and and when people are doing it prose, or maybe it's an amicable divorce, it could really help a couple too. It doesn't just have to be the individual. Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of times one individual is looking for something, and the other one can say, "Well, I got that," or I mean, it something with school, with the kids, whatever. But um, back to the point of. You know, if, if somebody's pro se and they're trying to get their case in order um, and they're trying to present it to a judge who has very little time and patience to listen to somebody who's pro se, if they don't have everything organized and their items in chronological order and their story straight or their motions very clear, it can, and Cameron, you tell me, but it can really make the judge say, well... You know, it, their credibility goes down very quickly in front of a judge, and the outcome of their case can suffer. Absolutely. I mean, uh, judges not only lose credibility, but they sometimes get impatient with a party who's been told a number of times the same thing, and it, they just, it, they're not necessarily acting in bad faith. They just don't understand. They don't know how to comply. And that's certainly not a desired outcome for the system. Yeah. And especially if somebody is in a high-conflict divorce, again, I'm talking about this, but if they're traumatized and they're, they're used to just kind of talking about their story and they're, you know, kind of a run-on sentences, 
if they're not succinct, if they're not organized, and it's not in order, a judge will have very little patience. So you you both recommend that something like C. Dick and Jane get divorced, the organization kit, is that something you bring to court? I think it's, I don't know. I'll let you answer that. I, I don't think so much bringing it to court, but there is um, an accordion file, and they can carry papers with them if they need them, but um, Cameron can probably explain more about the court process and what a client needs. But if you were pro se, sorry to interrupt, but mm, if you, yeah. depending on, I mean, if you've got Cameron, then no, probably not. But yeah. if you're trying to be an organized version if, of the pro se person. Yeah, if you're pro se, I think it's actually just it's your court file. Yeah, I, you can carry the documents you need for that particular hearing or appearance, whatever you're appearing for, be, you know, because sometimes the judge will say, um, give me a copy of that, you know, and you want to be able to hand three copies of here's to the other lawyer, here's to the judge, and here's one for me. It, I, is, yeah. it isn't materially different than what the lawyer might bring right. to court. Right, so exactly. It's, it, it is it's always good to be prepared. and Keep it in the trunk, right? Keep it in the like the body in the trunk. Spare with the spare. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. All right. Our next segment is brought to you by Heartland Family Mediators. If you are looking to explore mediation, Heartland Family Mediators uh, is a great option. You can go to their website at uh, heartland-mediators.com. They do online mediation. They do uh, financial mediation. They do pro se mediation, and they also consult with your attorneys. So check out the website at heartland-mediators.com. So I went to a conference. It was the Association for Divorce Financial Planners and the Association or Academy for Professional Family Mediators, a lot of acronyms. And there was a great uh, workshop on divorce by generations. And it was pretty enlightening to think about the different ways that some the demographic of their 20s, uh, millennials, which are 20s and 30s, um, Gen X, Gen Y, uh, boomers, and then I forget the word for people over 70, but there is one. Um, but there were some great statistics in this, and I thought we could talk about a little bit how our experiences with different demographics and how people can prepare or... Um, go into their divorce a little differently depending on their demographic. By the way, I think that's called, I saw, I was watching, I think it was Bill Maher I was watching, and they were talking to Judge Judy. She was one of the guests. And the silent generation is between boomers and... Is that it? The silent generation? The silent generation is apparently hmm. what they're called. I didn't even know that until then. I'll have to look and see what it is. And they're uh, what age? The ones under boomers, but but before, the, and I don't know what comes after boomers. Really. No, after boomers is the uh, silent generation, also known as the traditionalists, born in 1928 to 1945. Well, huh? I, sh- I watch too much TV. I said I should be on Jeopardy, but I watch too much TV. <laughs> what is so One of the most interesting statistics that still, um, in 2011 in the U.S., one-third of all divorce filings contained the word Facebook. Wow. Isn't that, cr- I mean, it's, not, it is surprising, but it isn't. In the petition, that's... that's and they're not surprising. divorcing their Facebook profiles. It's their spouse. Because <laughs> that would be good. So, are they, so the question is, how does it contain it, right? It's probably some sort of parameters around how Facebook can be used or... Is, do you know if that's saying that that's in the petition or is that uh, just in somewhere in the, in the case there's a motion of dealing with Facebook? I'm guessing it's somewhere in the case because it says in yeah. filings. Yeah, I, I, petition I, I, for I de- that. dissolution. Yeah. I, I I believe that Facebook and so, social media issues in general are are definitely a new territory. Not a new territory. It's a it's just increasingly litigated territory. Yeah, we we had we did a show on that. It was and this was 2011. Yeah, 
So this was eight years ago that it was this prevalent. So wow. it's only gotten better. It's only gotten better. Not, but I think this is an interesting topic because for me, I'm typically dealing with someone who's a house, which means they're going to be in a certain age bracket. What do you both see generationally different? Do you, do you tend to find that the people who work with you are your age and they just it just generally happens that way? Or do you find it goes across the board? And what differences do you see? All right. <laughs> Canadian standoff. I like that. <laughs> uh, my practice, uh, I would say, encompasses a pretty significant percentage of gray hair divorces. Um, and uh, not a lot of, you know, I mean, there are millennials, but, but it's a much greater percentage of longer marriages, uh, baby boomers, a lot of baby boomers. Um, and the, uh, you know, the, the gray hair divorces, I think, are, are actually harder in a lot of ways because you're dealing with, um, you know, sometimes end-of-life issues. Um, state planning comes into play. Um, at least you have to consider that in, in the process. Um, Social Security, the, you know, uh, pensions that are already in pay status. Um, all of these things are, are different parameters than what you might find in a baby boomer generation divorce. Or someone who's still, you know, someone who's younger. The three ways that they said the generations were kind of different when it came to divorce was uh, in terms of parenting, mm -hmm. in terms of economics, and then also in terms of technology, which we kind of just touched on too. Um, one of the interesting t statistics, though, was when it comes to the Gen Xers, that it's a very resilient and DIY generation because it's the latchkey kids, right? It's the generation that was in statistics, the least parented <coughs> group of people that have come uh, through our country. So they're the ones who don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to do it. I'll let you know if I want help. And they're also the least trusting. So that's an interesting demographic to try and reach out to. And, and that's a, in some ways for the attorney, a, a challenging personality to deal with because that's a difficult person to, uh, uh, they want to run their own divorce. Mm -hmm. They won't let you run it. And that can be an issue. And what age group is that again, the Gen Xers? Gen Xers are born from 1965 to 1980, so mm -hmm. currently age 38 to 53. Okay, Gen yes, that definitely makes sense to me yeah. because, uh, well, I'm a Gen Xer. But, um, yeah, I think people were a lot more, I know growing up I was, you know, on my own a lot, and my parents kind of were, Checked in on me once a week. <laughs> no, but I mean, we... Filled the <laughs> cupboard with food, right? <laughs> yeah, filled my water dish. <laughs> but no, we, we, we had a lot more independence. We w didn't have helicopter parents like they do nowadays. So yeah, I was, in, even in my divorce, I was much more independent. I thought, well, yeah. I'll kind of run this show and, you know, give my lawyers some, you know, a little bit of feedback. But um, Gen so X is the most educated. Mm -hmm. Gen X defines themselves by their work ethic. Yes. So we can just buckle down and do it ourselves. Yes. No one helped us when we were 12. Like it's that whole. Yeah, you tend to think I can do this and I don't have to ask for as much help as. And, and I, that's not the healthiest way to go through a divorce. You want a big support system. What, what, what is the thoughts on, though, like multi-generational, right? Let's say you have people with a 15-year difference in age. You've really got mm -hmm. people from two generations. How would that change the face of divorce, in your opinion? My answer to that you is always financial. In a couple, you mean? Yeah. The couple is big age? Oh, okay. I don't know. What are you saying? Big age gaps. It depends on, I think, what phase of life they're at. 
Yeah. Okay. It's it's more challenging for financial planning purposes when it comes to long-term care, when it comes to Social Security planning or pension planning. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, divorce, yeah. You know, I joke with my husband, who's most of the year nine years older than me, but for three months it's 10, so I say he's 10 years older than me. Um, the only time it really comes up is pop culture references, right? So he'll mention something and I'll glaze over, and that's really the only time it comes up. But it comes up mostly, I think, in financial impact and probably in terms of uh, children and parents you know if you've got that much of a swing in an age differential uh, the older person's parents are going to need care sooner the younger person's children may need so it's care gonna, I longer change coming coming down the pipe though because millennials whether we like it or not are having a pretty big impact on like the workplace and things like that so I think the the curve of change in how divorce is looked at is is very different right you're seeing an increase in prose seeing less people get married, things like that. It'll be interesting to see when like Gen Xers who might be married to millennials have how that will change and how that how that will engage because I think, you know, Gen Xers and the generation before that probably looked at divorce a lot the same way. You know, you get a lawyer, you do that, you you know, kinda They were also the children of the most divorces. That's when the divorce rate was rising through the eighties, oh, seventies right. uh, and eighties. So they were the children of people getting yeah, divorced. I think they're more prepared. Um, versus Mentally. the millennials, yeah. I think. Well, the, I think that they're more resigned that it is a potential outcome. Correct, mm -hmm. statistically. Um, millennials, though, have more student loan debt than anyone else. Um, mm -hmm. Less cash on hand across the board, um, but they also are the ones who are most focused on good credit, budgeting, um, use versus ownership is what uh, they talked about a lot. They want to be able to use an apartment, not necessarily own it, or a car, not necessarily own it. Um, and they've kept their money separate more often than other generations. Well, they're not getting, a lot of them aren't even getting married. They're not going to what? A lot of them aren't even getting married. They're just oh, kinda, right. They're getting married later, for sure. I do see more couples, and I don't know what Cameron sees, but I see more couples that have a lot more separate finances in that 30-something, 40, early 40s. I was going to ask you, in that same, along that same line, mm -hmm. what what do you see from a trend perspective in, you know, like the whole divorce coach thing, a lot of people don't get, right? They, right. they don't think they need it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know more and more attorneys are saying, no, <laughs> you need it. Um, but um, with, with that, are you seeing certain generations more open to having a divorce coach? Gosh, I, I've really had such a large span of ages but um if now that you're saying that the the bulk of the people that come to me are you know 40s and late 40s to be honest mm -hmm. so that must mean they're more open to looking for not that like option. the great not the great divorce no um i've had definitely i've had you know 50s and 60s but the bulk of them now that you're asking have been in their 40s which goes more to that Gen X of mm -hmm. don't tell me what I need. I'll figure it out. But I might hire a coach yeah. or hire a personal trainer That's or hire something yeah. like that to help me to help me figure it out for myself, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, I know that. Um, I don't know what you see. I would agree with what same similar conclusions to what, what you've experienced. Um, I think that that uh, millennials and boomers even are more open to a multidisciplinary approach to a problem. Mm -hmm. um, at least it's been my experience. And then often gray hair category, it's just it's a new concept and it's just not 
something that it, it, this should be a pretty binary experience. They have their way of doing yeah, things. Yeah, more cut and dry. Well, it's funny, and I don't know if this is generational, but this was the, one of the weirdest stories. So, so I, was at a, I was at a poker game and playing, and guys were talking <laughs> about different things. And this one guy said that, that he was never going to get a vasectomy. He had two healthy kids, never going to get a vasectomy. And the rationale was he and his spouse were both from divorced families, so, so that divorce was a realization, and he said he was less marketable after a divorce if he had gotten a vasectomy because if he were to marry, you know, a, a younger woman, that he would, she would want to have kids. And it, it struck me as bizarre and crazy, but there was like this practicality. The and pragmatic, generational X, yeah. practicality of saying, hey, you know what? Keep the I might have to be on the market again and, you know. <laughs> Didn't want to reduce his optionality. It yeah. was it was crazy. I that one blew me away. Totally blew me away. Hmm. I think that can be reversed, right? Yes, it, they can. I know yeah. that by it's expensive. personal experience. Yes. Um, another thing they mentioned too is with millennials, um, a lot of them have separate property through gifts mm -hmm. from their parents, but a lot of them also have um, parents that have co-signed mm -hmm. for property or co-signed for student loans, which brings me to something. Uh, Additionally, when you're talking about discovery, which we talked about earlier, a million years ago, I worked in banking. A lot of times, seniors want to put their children on their account because they want someone else to be on their account. Mm -hmm. If I've been on my mom's account for 10 years and she's got $100,000 in there, I own that account the same way she does in the eyes of the law. So to make that make sense in terms of marital versus non-marital property can be sticky, right? It, it can be very sticky. And uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that there's an argument that uh, we'd have to establish that it's really a month money, that she doesn't use it, um, and there might be a reimbursement claim going one way or the other to mom versus the marital estate. And if it's an account that's been around forever, the origin of those funds is probably not something that we can trace. It's probably not going to be that easy to... Well, it's not. I mean, banking records, unless mom has all of those, they just, you just, some of them are not available. Isn't it also, and um, maybe this is my naivete, but isn't it also about keeping those funds very separate? I mean, the minute you commingle any kind of marital funds, they become marital. It's called uh, transmutation. Okay. Uh, when the like and what you said. I actually have a, a question, though. It, 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 do you see, and, and I think I know the answer, spikes, right? So... You know, sort of looking sort of kind of how we laid this out, talking a little about generations, right? But there's age, too, right? So generation's part of it. Life cycle's part of it. I'm guessing that you see humps, right? So is it, do you see people you see because that's when the kids are out of the house? A huge spike. I mean, it's a big, a big I would say, transition point in, in for most people in their marriage and life. Uh, so, yeah, that the empty nester divorces, are, I mean, that's what we call them. Uh, I'm sorry. Empty, empty nester empty divorces. Divorce, right. um, you know, and you know what's happening there usually is it's usually mom who's feeling the the worst of it is the the youngest child's gone off to college and and uh, and mom is if she was stay at home doesn't know what to do with herself needs to really reinvent herself and if if the husband isn't helping that process along then um, I, I think that that's a you know a, a high probability of divorce in that, at that phase. It's hard. Do you see a lot of the same? I do, yeah, definitely. Um, and it comes, you know, like you say, especially moms, uh, you know, wanting to, I don't know, fly, be free. But um, I've seen it with dads, yeah. too. They get to the point where the kids, everything's kind of taken care of as far as everybody's reached 18. And 
now they're stuck by themselves and yeah it's a lot harder when there's no yeah, kids around say, to distract more, more about people waiting it out and looking and saying hey you know don't want to disrupt the kids or do anything like that and then that's big there are a lot of people that would would have gotten divorced sooner but yeah. for their kids um and the other side of that coin is it's the life's too short side yeah you know mm -hmm. people just reach a point where all right whatever it is that's bothering them is just too much and on top of that they realize that the longer they stay in that situation um you know th the more they miss out on, on what they on the life that they could live and especially when the ki when the kids are gone they only have each other to focus on so that's when it really becomes like oh my this is it you know and well, and we've done yeah. some great shows on pre-divorce counseling, and I think like that would be another interesting thing to talk about. We should write down for like a future show is like empty nest counseling, where people are like, "Hey, wow, I haven't seen you for twenty years," you know, <laughs> because we've had kids. And, you know, it definitely needs to be talked about more. I think yeah. I think people feel like they've failed or there's something wrong with their relationships when they mm -hmm. feel a bit estranged after raising kids for twenty, twenty-five years. But if there was some semblance of structure around that, like, okay, pre-divorce counseling is a thing. Yeah. And maybe dating again is a thing and, you know, figuring it out. Or pre-empty nester counseling. Pre-empty nester counseling. The high schools should offer that. <laughs> <laughs> or when we pay all the money in tuition to colleges, when we're paying oh. our last year of tuition, it should come with an empty nester. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I like that. You should mm -hmm. do a business idea. They write these down. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so take us to our next segment. All right. Split ready, or getting split ready is brought to you by Split Ready. We get a lot of questions about why we do what we do. And people wonder whether we're pro-divorce. And we're not pro-divorce. We're actually very pro-divorce preparation. But we also very much espouse if you've got a friend or family member or someone who's considering divorce, send them over to Split Ready so that they start the process correct. You can find out more information at www.splitready.com. We're going to end the show really talking about gray divorce, which is a a generational thing but I think it's more of an age-related thing and, and I think talking about when kids get out of the house because although you might not actually be gray that's kind of the age that we're talking only about. your hairdresser will know wasn't that an old Clairol commercial or something like only the hairdresser <laughs> yes. knows what you color just dated yourself but you know I would actually <laughs> open it up to our panel like what what do you how do you define gray divorce well I don't know how how other people define it but I define it as uh, as somebody who was really uh, approaching retirement age or already past it and still working uh, or if they're both retired and they get divorced that happens too so I, that's I would define it based on age I, I have to echo yes exactly I mean sometimes it's pre-retirement but it's based on age it's the yeah. boomer yeah, I was gonna uh, say from a financial the, perspective it's the boomer generation um, I think that the general uh, is 55 and older, um, but it's the only growing demographic of divorce, right? So as a whole, divorce rates have gone down. We've talked about that before. Um, but the divorce rate in those over 50, I believe, has doubled in the last decade. What? Uh, depending on your statistics that you referenced, yeah. doubled. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. I read something about no, that. No, I do have a question Today. on that. With, I've read about strategic divorce, and a lot of the laws for getting on you know medicare and medicaid mm -hmm. require you to almost become destitute so more and more people are actually thinking ahead because i think there's like three years between you know, a certain amount of time that you have to wait between look back when you get the other look back period mm -hmm. and people are actually choosing to get divorced put all of the debt in one person's name 
all of the assets in another person's name. Is that something that you're actually seeing? Yes. He <laughs> <laughs> leaned forward to do that for those <laughs> of you who can't see. On that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. Uh, no. oh, I'm, I'm, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was oh. kidding. Um, that's definitely something that it is uh, uh, that I have seen before. Um, I've seen it in the context of, um, you know, of somebody, uh, of p people trying to plan ahead for Medicaid and empty out as much as they can. Yeah, they, it's like you have to go down to one hundred ten thousand yeah. or some kind of yeah. crazy number. Right. Yeah, you have to go. You have to impoverish yourself to get on to get on Medicare. Is it Cade. Cade. Medicaid? Medicaid. Medicaid. Took me you years. Know, I, I get, I get it mixed up. Um, yeah, so you, you really, and I, this is not something I'm an, I'm an expert on, it's just the divorce part of it. I get right. contacted to, to handle the divorce and I have to know a little bit about. about so when they come in, though, are they like, hey, here's why we're getting divorced? Like, we actually really like each other, but. No, you know. it's usually not that. It's usually the, the life's too short side of the coin is the reason for the divorce, but there's a financial benefit of. Oh, interesting. Of, you know, maybe paving the road to qualify somebody for. So they're still getting along enough to plan it out, yeah. is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Usually they're, they're not. Usually, um, usually it's a, like a medical issue. Yeah. You know, one party is maybe has, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I do every time. Alzheimer's. Right. You know, as an example, and that type of long-term care goes on oh. for a very long time, uh, and that fact pattern definitely presents. Yeah, the statistics around long-term care are pretty staggering. Um, two of us are going to need it at some point. And if you need it, you usually need it for more than three years. That's the basic statistics is in this group of the Wait, four of us. The, 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 the women are going to need it? Is it well, one of us I isn't going to make it, I think, is what she's saying. No, um, <laughs> technically, it doesn't really matter whether it's male or female, but you'll need it sooner than we will because we live longer than you. Yeah, no, Statistically. Because um, you guys kill us, but that's fine. Well. But planning for long-term care <laughs> is hard. And so even in a couple that's been... You know, married since they're 18 and savers, planning for long-term care is difficult because it's so expensive. It's outpaced inflation. It's outpaced everything else so much that to plan for that kind of um, implosion to your financial bubble. You know, if you've got less than 250000 as a married couple, you're going to run out of money at some point. If you've got more than $10 million, you'll probably be able to self-insure. Those people in the middle... They're going to feel a pretty big hit if they've got to spend five hundred, eight hundred thousand over a time period to provide for long-term care. And when you add that to the divorce equation, how do we? You know, we've been together for thirty-five years. We plan to take care of each other. We're not going to do that anymore, and we can't fund to have someone else do it. That's a tough discussion, mm -hmm. um, and it depends on who's carried the health insurance, who's older. So there's a lot of different things to look at it. But when you're looking at retirement or you're in retirement and then you're looking at divorce, it's not just about the assets getting divided, but the income streams. What kind of income stream, you know, nobody likes social security. Nobody gets rich off it or does cartwheels because they have so much money. They like that it comes every month. Where do we get those guaranteed income streams for people who've planned forever to be together and then aren't? Those are the bigger issues for the gray divorces. The financials get really complicated. I'm sure. I mean, just on the housing part, it's crazy. Like, how do you afford housing? Like, who wants to keep the house and things like that? Yeah, I just uh, had a workshop on reverse mortgages, and I had kind of poo-pooed them in the past because I think they got a bad rap mm -hmm. a decade ago. Um, Tom Selleck likes them. They're not? Does, does <laughs> he do a commercial Selleck. for them? Do you think he's Tom getting Selleck paid and, and the Fonz, like right? Both of no them way. are no, really no, big no, on no. Really? Not Tom. Yeah. I haven't Henry seen it. You, uh, you watch more TV than I do. <laughs> I watch too much TV. I do watch too much TV. But And you're the expert on the mortgages, but there were some interesting scenarios in which – 
they made sense, and I think that they've been become more regulated. They're um, it's an FHA. Like, yeah, it's an FHA loan now, right? You, you, they can't take your house away and things like that. The fees used to be heavy. Now the fees are a little bit less. Um, but it's a good, it's a, a decent product for the right purpose, and usually there's people who really specialize in them. You know, it's one thing I don't specialize in because I like, you know, if, if someone needs that, they really need someone who can get them through it without without pain and, and all the stuff that you're talking about are considerations, and they really have to know how to look at things like that. So. Yeah, and I think Social Security comes into play. I think mm-hmm. that most people know now about that 10-year marker for being married. Um, that if you've been more married for more than 10 years, then you have a right to claim on your spouse's Social Security record. Um, what people may not realize is that you can't be remarried. Right. Um, that if you've been, you have to be divorced for at least two years before you can do that. So there's some little caveats in there that um, require more planning. Um, I was talking to Cameron before I went on the air. If a couple has a plan, you know, they've, I'm a financial planner. So if they've done what I tell them to do and we've had a plan and they've worked their plan, and someone claims Social Security at 62, they claim early, they take that reduction because someone else is going to let their Social Security grow to 70 because mm-hmm. that's going the higher earner can grow more, and then they get divorced. That person who claimed early, that reduction's permanent. Mm-hmm. They can't ever get back to that full Social Security. So they've reduced their income, and the person who let theirs grow has more Social Security income. And that's a, you know, it used to be a three-legged stool where it was Social Security, savings, and pension. The pension leg has been wobbly for a good decade here now. Mm-hmm. So if you take the Social Security leg out, then your stool is going to topple. So figuring out how to even out that disparity in Social Security income makes uh, makes it more challenging for great divorces as well. Agreed. Well, it's a great subject. And, and I think, again, great show tonight. I really want to thank our guests. Cameron Goodman, you want to end real quick again with if people want to get hold of you, what's the best way to get hold of you? Uh, phone number is 630-474-6700, and website is goodmandivorce.com. And Colleen Honquist, if they want to get hold of you, what's the best way to get hold of you? Yeah, the best place is divorcecoalition.com, and if they're looking for organizational products, they can go on cdickandjanegetdivorce.com. One thing I want to plug before we close out, uh, our events calendar we've rolled out on our website uh, if you take the Split Ready assessment, you get a free membership on Split Ready to access items like our calendar where you can see divorce events going on in your area. And our pro network. And our pro network, absolutely, launching this week. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We really appreciate you listening to the Getting Split Ready podcast. We appreciate our guests. If you or someone you know is considering or going through divorce, go to splitready.com, take the assessment, find out if you're split ready. And remember that you can get through your divorce, divorces, <laughs> Freudian slip, you can get through your divorce with your finances, your integrity, and maybe some of your sanity intact. All right, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. No, you cannot have too much.